Well, South African history is peppered with inspirational stories um, of heroes and heroines that many people have never heard of. And one of those that all South African children are taught in school is the story of Rahoki de Beer. Rahoki being the Afrikaans form of uh, Rachel, Rachel de Beer. In 1843, a caravan of fur trackers or pioneers were um, cutting a trail, trailblazing from central South Africa to southeastern Transvaal and with their covered wagons and the, the herds of cattle that they were taking with them. And the children in this uh, caravan, this group of families going together, sort of adopted this one little calf that they named Fricky, the little baby cow, and um, uh, they you know, named it and fed it and played with it. And one day they noticed that Fricky had gone missing. And so the kids, very distressed, all went to their parents and said they had to go and find Fricky. And so uh, the parents formed a little search party and all the children went with and they went on this adventure to go and find the little calf. But um, during this time, they kind of spread out and it started getting dark. And Rachelki and her uh, little brother, she was 12 years old. Her little brother was six years old. His name was Dirki. They got separated from the rest of the family and the rest of the search party. And they tried to find them. They couldn't even hear their voices. They had wandered so far away. And it got darker and darker. And then it started to snow. And uh, after wandering around in the snow for hours, uh, little Rachelki realized that they weren't going to make it. And so... Uh, she found a, an anthill. If you've ever been to a game reserve in South Africa, you see these mud anthills. They grow, they can be six feet, they can be ten feet high. They're these giant anthills. And um, when an, an anteater, a little artfark comes, what they do is they, they dig in there and they hollow out a section. And so she found one of these tall, you know, human-sized anthills that had been hollowed out by an artfark. And she got her little brother, um, Durki, and pushed him into that hollow and then she took off her clothes, her skirt and her overcoat, all of her clothes, and wrapped him up, bundled him up in her clothes, pushed him into the hollow, and then lay her bare body against the entrance so that he would be sealed in there. And that's how they slept all night. Well, the next morning, a search party had been sent out to find them and found little Durki had survived, but Rahuki de Beer had frozen to death. And so there's a number of monuments um, for her in the country and schools named after her and children are taught that lesson. Um, but that's not only a story from history, that really is a manifestation of a biblical truth, um, a biblical concept, this kind of love. And there are two terms used to describe what Rahulki de Beer did, and both of those are used in our text this morning. So turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. We learned last week as we were going through this epistle that Peter has sent to Christians that have been scattered abroad during persecution. He's encouraging them to keep calm and carry on, to do the next right thing, to live Christian lives in the midst of whatever's happening in their lives. And so as he's been doing this, he started off by extolling the virtues of our salvation, just showing us what it is that we have, that we have been saved from our sin. And that helps us to keep our eyes on the future, set on the things that are to come that are for sure that aren't uh, corruptible or uh, cannot be defiled or lost or kept in heaven for us. And by doing that, that helps us navigate whatever problem we're going through uh, in this life, even something as severe as this type of persecution. 
And then after talking about salvation and just the, the glories of salvation, um, he then moved on to help us appreciate what it is that Christ did for us. That's what we looked at last week. Four aspects of Christ's work which make us appreciate our faith. We saw that Christ's work was planned. That's one of the things that makes it so glorious that this didn't just happen to him, that this was foreknown before the dawn of time, as we just sang. He chose us. Um, secondly, we saw that it was personal, uh, Christ's work, because Peter says it was for your sake. And that, that that is terminology that the Bible uses. You can say Jesus died for me personally, not just for uh, an abstract crowd, the church, but that it was personal. We also saw that it was particular. Christ's work is not applied to everybody in the world. It's not that everyone gets forgiven, whether they ask it or not. It's not that everyone goes to heaven, but this is on behalf of those that believe in him. We saw also that it was purposeful, that the reason this plan was put into, um, uh, into action was not a response to Adam and Eve falling. It was not a response to Satan sinning, that this was all part of God's plan so that he could show his glory in Christ. And we looked at that big picture, that there's so much more that we know about Jesus and who he is and what God is like because there's evil in the world and because there's suffering and because there's sin. And so now we can understand and appreciate the value of his mercy and his love and his justice and all those attributes we wouldn't even know if we just lived in heaven from the time we were born, right? So that's what we looked at last week. And at this point in the letter, Peter now shifts gears and moves from exploring the vertical aspects of salvation to the horizontal aspects. And what I mean is that he starts to apply how we relate to Christ to the way that we now relate to each other. So rather than your relationship with God, he's saying because of this relationship you have with God through Christ, this, this kind of vertical um, relationship, you now also have this horizontal relationship with the people around you who are also in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read it for, from verse 20 for you. And he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this morning we're only going to be able to do verse 22. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to see four ways that you need to love Christians to demonstrate your salvation. So this is where it goes from vertical, you and God. You, yes, you're saved through Christ. But now, uh, four ways that you need to love the people horizontally, other Christians, to demonstrate that you have been saved. So we're going to learn to love fellow Christians sincerely, actively, primarily, and earnestly. And I'll explain each of those appellations as we get to them. And we'll start with the first one, sincerely. You need to love fellow Christians sincerely. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, we use the word love uh, to describe a, a spectrum of our affections. Uh, we say that we love God. We love our family. We love our country. We love our freedom. We love these things, but we also say that we love chocolate, which we do. Uh, we love a puppy. You might say, I, I love sleeping in on Saturdays. But that's a very wide spectrum, spectrum, isn't it? Loving God, family, country, all the way down to brownies and everything in between. So context tells us when you talk, when you say, I love something, it's the context of what you're talking about that tells you what kind of love you're, you're referring to. Greek is a little bit more precise. It has different words for love depending on the different types of love. So there's three words in Greek for love, um, and only two of them are used in the New Testament. One is uh, the word eros. This is the one that's not used in the New Testament. This is a romantic love. If you say, you know, I love my girlfriend, you know, um, or, or my wife, that's, it, that can be an eros. Um, then there is agape which is the one you're probably most familiar with. It's referring to an, an act of love, a sacrificial love, the love that Christ has for us, the love that we are to have for one another. And then there's the word phileo, phileo, which is like our English word has um, more of a spectrum and just refers to an affinity. And it can be a very strong affinity and it can be the kind of love that we have for family or for God or for Christ. Um, but it can also just be anything that you like. And we have a lot of English words that have this phileo part in it. Like um, if you are a bibliophile, that means you're somebody that likes books um, or loves books. Maybe people might think you have a problem that you love books that much, but I can quit any time. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's where that file comes from. It's the, the something that you love. Now, the phrase brotherly love that he uses here. Let me just read the verse again. Um, from obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You can imagine, you could probably just guess what that word is because Pennsylvania has a city that's called the city of brotherly love. And what city is that? Philadelphia. So there you go. Those are your two Greek words. Um, phileo is the love and delphoi is brother. So Philadelphia is a place of brotherly love. So that's the word being used here, that, that you would have a sincere Philadelphia. It's like brotherly love is the natural outflowing of your salvation. Having been purified of your sins through your obedience, because you're, because you're in Christ, because you have this, this vertical relationship with him, there's now going to be this outflowing to other people who also have that vertical relationship. So you're going to love the brothers. Like being employed results in work. Being saved results in love. If you have the status of being employed, that means now you have work to do. That's what it means. That's the result of having that status. If you have the status of being saved and being in Christ and having your salvation, now you have love to do. That's, that's what you have been saved for, to love. You've been saved by God's love, for God's love, and the love of his people. So as precious as you are to your Savior, and we have looked at that in some depth in the past weeks, haven't we? That you are precious to your Savior, that he died for you personally, as well as corporately that he ransomed you with his precious blood, 
and that's how special you are to him, that's also how special every other Christian is to him. And it's helpful for you to remember that, especially when you meet Christians who are annoying, and there's lots of them, because people can be annoying, even Christians, right? And you have to remind yourself that no matter where a person is in their spiritual walk with the Lord, in their level of maturity, they could be a brand new believer, they could be a mature believer, they could be somebody who's been a believer for a long time and hasn't matured. Whatever that is, and whatever that effect has on your life, you might be married to one of them. You might have an in-law who's one of them. You might have a boss who's one of them. You might have other people in the church who are, are these people that aren't, aren't where you would like them to be spiritually. You need to remember that as precious as you are to your Savior, they are that precious to Him too. And so therefore, you need to love them. You are now in this group of people that have this relationship with God vertically, so therefore, horizontally, we need to love one another, have a sincere love of the brothers. Now here's the kicker. If you look at the verse carefully. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So stop there for a moment. The tense, having purified your souls, implies an order, doesn't it? So if I use the sentence this way, having completed your coursework to obtain a law degree, take your board exams as soon as you can. Okay, so that would be a, that would be a normal English sentence with one command, take your board exams, but there's something being loaded up front. Having completed your coursework to obtain the law degree, take your board exams. So the command comes, but it assumes that something else has been completed beforehand. That's exactly how he's saying this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's only one command in the verse, and that is to love one another earnestly. We're going to get to that. But this is, this is the point. It, it needs to be sincere. It can't just be something you do. You have to be in this actual relationship with God for this to work. Having purified your souls through the, your obedience to the truth, having been saved of your sin, having been declared righteous, and now you're in obedience to him. You call Jesus Lord because you submit to his leadership. And once you're in that situation... Now the command's going to come and it's going to start making sense. Having purified your soul, love one another, implies that your soul has in fact been purified. That you're saved. Now I want you to turn for a moment to 1 John. If you're in 1 Peter, go 2 Peter and then 1 John. We'll look at a couple of passages in 1 John. 1 John 3, 14. I want you to realize that love for other Christians is actually an assurance that you have been saved. So assurance is a word that means you have the subjective feeling of feeling safe that you're saved. And so, so your salvation is secure the moment that you're saved. But let's face it, during your life there may be periods where you're not sure if you're saved. You might say it this way, I don't feel saved. That doesn't change whether you are or you aren't. Your salvation is secured once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross. In the moment you place your faith in him, it applies to you forever. But if you are in sin, in unrepentant sin, you might doubt your salvation. 
you might feel maybe I'm not even saved because now I'm living like someone who's not saved. Was that a genuine experience? So that's what we talk about assurance. It's one of the, the most common things I've had to counsel in my time as a pastor is Christians who aren't sure if they're saved or not. And sometimes it's because they're not. And that's always wonderful because that means if a person is feeling that way and they're not saved, that they're ripe for the gospel and you walk them through the gospel and they get saved. Um, but often it is the person is actually saved and they just, there's an understanding in their theology that needs to be recalibrated, you know, kind of like when a chiropractor kind of clicks your neck back into place. You're like, okay, that feels better. Sometimes you just need to have your theology clicked straight and you're like, oh, okay, that's how those verses work together. And one of the ways that I help with that um, in the counseling, there's various tests in Scripture that help you determine whether you're saved. And one of the key tests is this one. How you relate to other believers. What you feel about other believers. And we get it from this verse in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we've been saved because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So a couple of things you need to know, especially when John's writing, but throughout the New Testament, whenever the text talks about a brother or a sister, or brothers and sisters, or brothers, brethren, any of those terms, it's referring to other believers. So the Bible talks about neighbors is just anybody, whether they're a believer or not. Enemies is usually somebody who's not a believer. But brothers, or brothers and sisters, refers to believers. So now let me read that again, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. If you do not love, he who does not love, abides in death. In other words, you, you, have, you, haven't come, you haven't been born again. You haven't been raised from the dead spiritually. You haven't become saved if you hate other believers. Conversely, if you are saved, you will love other believers. Now go to just the next chapter there, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says the same thing, but he says it from the opposite angle. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there you see it said the other way. If you are a Christian, you must love other Christians. If you don't, then that's going to affect your assurance. You're not even going to be sure if you're saved because one of the proofs that you're saved is that you love other Christians. So this is what this looks like. Uh, sometimes you'll meet a Christian who says, I believe in Christ. I've repented of my sins. But I don't go to church. And the reason I don't go to church is because church is full of those Christians. And Christians are judgmental, and Christians are hypocritical, and Christians have hurt me in the past, and Christians are just as bad as everyone else. So I have my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I don't need other Christians. Yikes. 
I understand why people have that feeling, and I understand that there are some pretty bad churches out there, and I understand even that the best churches have times and seasons and where there's struggles, and even the best churches have people in them that hurt one another. It's, it's just part of life. We're still sinners. But if you don't love other Christians, you're not a Christian. That's what the Bible says. You can't say, I hate Christians, but I love Christ. That's exactly like saying, I really like Clint. I want to go over and have a barbecue with him. I just hope his wife isn't there. I hate her. You and I can't be friends if you hate my wife. You and Jesus can't be friends if you hate his bride. It's what the Bible teaches. So go back to 1 Peter. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So your love needs to be sincere. It needs to be unhypocritical. It is a family bond. So here's a couple of questions for you. Do you love coming to church? And I know that sometimes you might think the sermon's a bit long, it's not the kind of music I would listen to on my own, but that's, that's not really what I'm asking when I said you like coming to church because where is the church? Church is the people. I told you that before, you know, the little rhyme. Um, here's the church, here's the steeple. If you open the doors inside of the people, and then I taught you that that's heresy. Um, it actually, it's not heresy. It's just, it's just not, it's not perfectly accurate. This is better. Uh, here is a building. It might have a steeple, if you open the doors, inside is the church. Okay, the church are the people. So my kids have been trying to help me figure out a way to make it rhyme, but rhyming is less important than theology. <laughs> inside is the church, not the building. So when I say, do you love coming to church? I mean, do you love gathering with other believers? That's the issue. It doesn't matter if you like the music. It doesn't matter if it's too hot or too cold. It doesn't matter if the sermon's too long. It really doesn't matter if the sermon's too long. It matters that you love being with other Christians. If you don't love being with other Christians, if you can go months at a time without meeting with Christians, that's a problem. And we saw this happen. It's really the only time I've ever seen this experiment happen in the history of my young life was when COVID hit. And for the first time, we weren't allowed to meet. And there were two types of reactions you tended to see among Christians. Those people who felt this huge relief that now they didn't have to go to church anymore. And those people, some of them still haven't come back. Then you've got the people that just couldn't bear to be without the people. And we had people calling all the time saying, can't we? And this was like right in the beginning when it was like very uncertain and everyone thought we were all just going to, the whole world was going to drop dead. Like the zombie apocalypse was happening, you know, like three days after lockdown, people calling like, let's meet anyway. And I felt that way too. And we wanted to do that. And there was people, we said, well, we're just going to have a couple of people meet so that we can record the sermons. And some of you showed up anyway, even though we told you not to. But I, I, I love that because it just shows there were people like, we can't wait to get back together. See, that's a good sign. You need to love Christians sincerely and love their fellowship. Secondly, you need to love them actively. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Now, what Peter does here is significant. And you might miss it at first, 
if you don't spot the difference between brotherly love and the command love. He's using two different words here. Unfortunately, in English, we just have the one with the spectrum. But in Greek, we've just used the Philadelphia, the phileo, the love, the affection you have for brothers and sisters. And then the command is to agape one another. So there's two different loves here. Brotherly love is the phileo. The agape, remember I told you, is the love of sacrifice, the love of action. So this is what I mean when I say you have to love the brothers actively. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, agape one another, love one another actively, sacrificially, earnestly from a pure heart. Agape is the highest form of sacrificial love. It's not merely an affection that you feel. It is an action that is embodied in service and sacrifice. That's what, now the ladies are right in the middle of it's the ladies' Bible study. They're reading 1 Corinthians 13. That is the, the great chapter in the Bible about love, and you can go and read that on your own time. But notice as you're going through that chapter that it's about sacrifice and service, being patient with one another, believing the best about one another, not being rude. You're going to have to sacrifice. Uh, even if I, I give my body to be burned and I have not love, I'm, I'm nothing. There must be this desire to do this for other people. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love agape, one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And do you remember the context of John 13? Where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you're to love one another the way I loved you. He hasn't died yet on the cross. That's about to happen. This is the Last Supper. This is the night before he does that. So when he says, I've given you a new commandment, I want you to love one another the way I've loved you, you know what he's referring to? What he just did. What did he just do before he said that? He? Yeah, he washed his disciples' feet. So on the, the two legs of, of love over here, you've got the service, the humble serving of Jesus to his disciples, at the Last Supper, and the very next day, giving his life for them. Service and sacrifice. That's agape. And the new commandment to you, love one another that way. Serving each other. Sacrificing for each other. Active love. Rachel Ki Debir's love for her brother was manifest through sacrifice. And she was willing to die in order to help him survive. That's where Philadelphia becomes agape. You see the overlap? She has a love for her brother to the point of death. So when Peter says, now that you've been saved and you have this love of the brothers, I want you to love one another earnestly, fervently. Now that you've got the Philadelphia, I want you to transform that into agape for one another. Sacrifice. You know, in, in seminary, the, um, a lot of our professors had been pastors for many years. And so one of the things you would hear from a few of them at different times is that, let me just prepare you young bucks as you come out of seminary and you go into ministry, that you're going to be all eager to serve 
And this is going to be your job. So you're going to wake up thinking how to serve in the church and you're going to go to bed thinking how to serve in the church. But that's not what the people in the church are necessarily going to be like, right? And then they told us this. Expect for 80% of the work to be done by 20% of the people. And that's sad that a smaller group of Christians is willing to actually live like Christians. We should all be living like Christians. And I'm so thankful that in this particular church, we have a much higher percentage of people who are willing to give and sacrifice and serve. But there's always going to be people who are in Christ and just, for some reason, they just don't want to love fervently. I've, I've even had people sometimes say to me, well, I don't want to become a member. I like coming to church. I just don't want to become a member because then people are going to start asking me to do stuff. And kind of the seeker-sensitive church growth philosophy would be like, that's okay, that's okay. Just come, just attend, and then maybe they'll mature over time. Whereas it seems like the biblical response is actually, well, then maybe this isn't your church. If you just want to, and I mean, that can make you sad. I understand. Um, but maybe this isn't your church then. Here, everybody serves because everybody loves one another. And if you love people, you want to serve and you want to sacrifice. So thirdly, so firstly, you need to love other Christians sincerely. You have to actually be saved and know that. Secondly, you need to love them actively and serve and sacrifice. Thirdly, primarily. I didn't want to say exclusively because that's not true. We have to love everybody. But primarily Christians. Verse 22 again. Um, you know, to, to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love who? One another. One another. And that one another is important. You see these one another's throughout Scripture. Serve one another, confront one another, comfort one another, help one another. And here's love one another. Now, as I said, in South Africa, all kids learn the story of Rachel Ki de Beer. And, and I got into a little debate with my younger sister about this once. She's six years younger than me, so when Rahulki was 12, her little brother Durki was six. When I was 12, my little sister was six. And so our debate was, does the story of Rahulki de Beer teach that older siblings need to sacrifice for younger siblings, or does it teach, the way I interpret it, that sisters need to sacrifice for brothers? And so I try to convince her of that. No, 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 you need to be like Rachel Kitabir because she's the sister. And the sister's willing to sacrifice for the brother. And she was like, no, it's because she was the older one that she sacrificed. Anyway, that whole debate misses the point, doesn't it? The love needs to be mutual. We all need to love one another mutually, earnestly from a pure heart. That doesn't mean that we don't love unbelievers. So it's not that Christians love each other exclusively and don't love unbelievers. Of course we love unbelievers. The way God loves the whole world. We need to love the whole world. We're, we're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point of the Good Samaritan is irrespective of the person's religion, you still have to love them. Even the Samaritan knew that. So, yes, we have to love unbelievers. And in fact, the Bible tells us to love our enemies, people that are actually persecuting your religion you still have to love. So we're not saying don't love unbelievers, but there is a very special focus of our love directed towards believers. 
In Mark chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Mark 9, 41 is talking about that, yes, you can give anyone who needs a cup of water to anyone who needs a cup of water, but when you do that to a fellow believer and you do it because they're a Christian, there's something very special happening there, that there's reward in that. We are, of course, more likely to do a favor for a family member than a stranger. That's normal. That's okay. What Jesus is saying is, Christians are now family members. So that impulse that you have to look primarily after your, your family and then strangers is, is fine. You just now need to apply that to all Christians. Because Christians aren't strangers, they're family. And if you've ever traveled throughout the world, you know what this is like. Because in all the countries that I've been to, and usually when I travel, it's for some sort of ministry reason. And I meet Christians, and we're like family instantly. You can barely speak each other's language. Sometimes you have to speak through a translator. But you're family, and, and people will sacrifice, and they will allow you into their homes. And that's the way it should be. You know, recently, I, um, somebody gave me this uh, DNA testing thing. I know some people are like all freaked out about it because now they've got your DNA and I don't care what they're going to do. Um, famous last words, I know. But anyway, I did it. I took the little spit sample and I sent it off and you know, a few weeks later they give me, I don't know if you've ever done this, this like whole little DNA tree and then it puts you um, in contact with all of your other family members who have done the same thing. So anyone else has sent their spit off and then it tells you you've got like this amount of percentage. It's kind of cool. I, I sort of liked it. And you see your ethnicity and um, you see different people that are maybe a first cousin or a second cousin that you didn't know about. So there were some that were quite closely related to me that I didn't know about. So I sent them messages. Hey, cuz. <laughs> You're obviously somebody who likes this DNA thing too. So, I mean, why else would you do it and make your profile public with your face? I didn't say all that, obviously, but that's my thinking. And so I... I contacted some of them, and we said hi to one another, whatever. But and in this day and age, you can go and look at each other on, the, on Facebook. So some of these people have Facebook profiles. So I'll go check out my new little fourth cousin twice removed on Facebook, and I'm like, eee. <laughs> it says, do you want to befriend this person? I'm like, no. <laughs> we have nothing in common. And I was surprised by how many of these family members I wouldn't even want to be friends with just based on, like, we don't have anything in common whatsoever. And compare that to, though, when you go and you meet somebody overseas that, that has no blood relation to you whatsoever, but you, they're also believers in Christ. You, you are like family. It's an amazing thing. And it's a wonderful thing. Kim and I, once we were, uh, when we first moved to South Africa, we were living with some people, and we went for a walk in the neighborhood, and we saw there was this house for sale. So we go to this house, and, I mean, it was like a mansion, and um, we knock on the door and we say, can we see it? And this couple, they must have been in their like 60s. They're sort of retired and we're in our 20s. And there's no way we're ever going to buy this mansion. But there was a sign outside and they said, well, you're supposed to go through the realtor and everything. So we start talking and we say, oh, you know, I'm the new Baptist. And, and oh, you're, the, you're a Christian? We're Christians too. And they invite us into their home, show us around, and then serve us lunch. We're complete strangers. 
And let me just tell you something about South Africa. You do not invite strangers into your house. That's dangerous. And here we are, and, and we just had fellowship. And it's not like they were trying to sell us the house. It wasn't a sales pitch. And they didn't come to our church. They were already going to another church, and that was fine. And, but we were like family just for that moment. Why? Because we had Christ in common. So there's a, a, a love that we have that's primarily due to other Christians. John 13, 34, new commandment I give to you. You love one another. But then verse 35 says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. How will people know that you're a Christian? See, your instinct is to say, because they'll see the love I have for them. No, no, no. The Bible says, they'll know you're a Christian because of the love that you have for other Christians. Because that's what makes no sense. When they look at a, a community, and this community doesn't have anything in common. They're not affinity-based. They're not here because they're all in the same uh, social economic status or the same race. Or What they have in common is Christ. And they love each other. And there's no real reason for them to love each other. And yet they do huh, this Christianity thing must be true. And again, in the ladies' Bible study, as they've been going through 1 Corinthians, they got to 1 Corinthians 10, and there's an interesting little passage in 1 Corinthians 10, I'll just read it to you, um, that's talking about your freedom to eat whatever, whatever's put in front of you. And the issue at hand was that there were, in Corinth, there was this place you could get meat, um, that had been offered to idols, and that's why it was cheaper. It had been offered, and so the temple was selling it off for practically nothing. And so, you know, you go and buy that. That's the budget meat. But there were some Christians who felt like Christians shouldn't eat that meat because it had been associated with an idol. And we still have a problem today. Like, maybe you shouldn't shop at this place because those people associate with something we don't agree with, and there's some confusion. Well, there was confusion in the New Testament about this too. So Paul gives instruction, and his basic instruction is, none of that matters, just eat what's in front of you. But then there's this interesting little caveat. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's saying you can eat meat offered to idols. That's cheaper. Eat it. It's all God's anyway. Then he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you want to go, go. It doesn't matter. Go eat with the unbeliever and they're going to serve you the idol meat. Don't worry about it. Just eat it. But, verse 28 says, if someone, implying a believer who's there with you, says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So what he's saying is, you get invited to an unbeliever's house, you go to the unbeliever's house, and the person with you is a new believer, a new Christian, and you're all eating together, and the unbeliever serves this meat, and there's, you know, a stamp to the goddess Aphrodite on it or whatever. They look at the packaging, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is the meat that comes from the meat market for the idol. And the new Christian says to you, this is, this is idol meat. Now, you've just been told you can eat it. You're mature enough. But at that moment, you now have to choose between offending your host, the unbeliever, or offending the fellow guest, the believer. Now, my instinct would be, if, if, I, didn't, if I hadn't read that, just as a Christian, I would think, well, then you, you side with the host. Because your believer friend's going to have to forgive you anyway. And also, your believer friend's going to be mature one day and realize they were wrong. They didn't have to boycott the temple. 
And thirdly, this is an unbeliever who needs to be one to Christ. That's why we're here, so we can share the gospel. We don't want to offend them. So I would say you side with the host, and you just offend the believer, and afterwards you patch things up. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, if this person is going to be offended, for their sake, you abstain then. Sorry, I can't eat that meat because it's been offered to an idol. And your host, the unbeliever, is going to be super offended. And that doesn't matter. Because your love for the brother is what's actually going to impress them. Because you are getting all excited about the, you know, Aphrodite pork chops or whatever. And then the brother said this, and he saw you give up what you wanted for your brother. And he's going to think, I want to be in that family. Nobody does that for me. So love Christians primarily. And then finally, earnestly, I mean, this is just kind of part of it, they, um, uh, to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And all I mean by this is, I just wanted to make the point, you have to actually love other believers. You have to actually love them, like earnestly, fervently. We've already said sincerely, not hypocritically. In other words, you know, sometimes Christians say, well, I love them in the Lord. Have you ever heard that? Ugh, that person. I love them in the Lord. Because they're a Christian, and I heard the sermon, I was there as well, so we all know we have to love each other, but boy, I don't like them at all. See, that doesn't count. You can't just love them in the Lord. To love them in the Lord means to love them fervently, to actually have love for them. And you might say, but how can God command me to feel something for someone when I don't feel it? And this is a big problem with our world today is the world teaches you that you're not in control of your feelings. And this is what psychology has handed down to the world that, oh, well, this is just how you feel. The, love, the, the heart wants what the heart wants. No, the heart is sick. Tell it to stop wanting that. And, and well, I just, don't, I just don't feel up to it. Who cares? Do it anyway. The feelings will follow. And John Piper's got this great quote where he says, we have to get over this idea that God can't command our feelings. He can, and he does. You have to understand that God can and does command you to feel things. And one of the things that he commands you to feel is joy. One of the things that he commands you to feel is love. You have to love other Christians. So what if I don't? Repent. Start serving them. Start praying for them. Start loving them actively, sacrificially fervently and i'm telling you the emotions will line up because the emotions are not the caboose the, the emotions are not the thing that drive our action our knowledge of the truth and our obedience to christ drives our action and the emotions they they come and go and they fluctuate and they fall in line so start serving people praying for them and this this is key remind yourself that jesus loves them like he loves you Full circle. He ransomed them from the feudal ways of their forefathers the same way he ransomed you, with his precious blood, for their sake, just like he died for your sake. And because of this vertical relationship that you have with God, they have a vertical relationship too. And because of that, you now have a relationship with each other. And the feelings will follow. 
How do I get in this family? You might ask if you're not in it. Easy. You just ask. Jesus never turns anyone away. If you knock, he opens the door. If you seek him, you will find him. And the reason you can be in the family, even though you're a sinner, you can join the rest of the sinners, you, you can become one of the forgiven sinners, is because of Christ's clothing. His righteousness clothes you. So in the same way that Rachel de Beer clothes her brother in her clothes and then shielded him from the cold so that he would survive and she would die, Jesus Christ clothes you in his righteousness and takes on your sin and shields you not from the cold but from the wrath of God that you have earned. And in doing so, he bears the brunt, the entirety, every drop of that wrath so that you can have salvation forever. And all you need to do is to believe that, to know that that's your only way in, and to ask him for that forgiveness. And he will forgive you, and he will cleanse you, and he will shield you from the wrath to come. And then you can have sincere brotherly love the same way Jesus has for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. Always your word is so encouraging and so challenging. We confess that there are times we do not love the way that we've been instructed to. We do not love the way we have seen our Savior love us. But we pray that even your words today from, from your scripture and your spirit in us would lead us into this righteous behavior as a manifestation of your work in us so that unbelievers can see and can long for the love that we have for one another in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.